Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 5 Man and Mythologies Part 2 Now we do not comprehend this process in ourselves, far less in our most remote fellow creatures. And the danger of these things being classified is that they may seem to be comprehended. A really fine work of folklore, like The Golden Bough, will leave too many readers with the idea, for instance, that this or that story of a giant's or wizard's heart in a casket or a cave only means some stupid and static superstition called the external soul. But we do not know what these things mean, simply because we do not know what we ourselves mean when we are moved by them. Suppose somebody in a story says, Pluck this flower, and a princess will die in a castle beyond the sea. We do not know why something stirs in the subconsciousness, or why what is impossible seems also inevitable. Suppose we read, And in the hour when the king extinguished the candle, his ships were wrecked far away on the coast of the Hebrides. We do not know why the imagination has accepted that image before the reason can reject it, or why such correspondences seem really to correspond to something in the soul. Very deep things in our nature. Some dim sense of the dependence of great things upon small. Some dark suggestion that the things nearest to us stretch far beyond our power. Some sacramental feeling of the magic in material substances. And many more emotions past finding out are in an idea like that of the external soul. The power even in the myths of savages is like the power in the metaphors of poets. The soul of such a metaphor is often very emphatically an external soul. The best critics have remarked that in the best poets, the simile is often a picture that seems quite separate from the text. It is as irrelevant as the remote castle to the flower or the Hebridean coast to the candle. Shelley compares the skylark to a young woman in a turret, to a rose embedded in thick foliage, to a series of things that seem to be about as unlike a skylark in the sky as anything we can imagine. I suppose the most potent piece of pure magic in English literature is the much-quoted passage in Keats' Nightingale about the casements opening on the perilous foam, and nobody notices that the image seems to come from nowhere, that it appears abruptly after some almost equally irrelevant remarks about Ruth, and that it has nothing in the world to do with the subject of the poem. If there is one place in the world where nobody could reasonably expect to find a nightingale, it is on a windowsill at the seaside. But it is only in the same sense that nobody would expect to find a giant's heart in a casket under the sea. Now, it would be very dangerous to classify the metaphors of the poets. When Shelley says that the cloud will rise, like a child from the womb, like a ghost from the tomb, it would be quite possible to call the first a case of the coarse primitive bird myth, and the second a survival of the ghost worship, which became ancestor worship. But it is the wrong way of dealing with a cloud, and is liable to leave the learned in the condition of Polonius, only too ready to think it is like a weasel, 
or very like a whale. Two facts follow from this psychology of daydreams, which must be kept in mind throughout their development in mythologies and even religions. First, these imaginative impressions are often strictly local. So far from being abstractions turned into allegories, they are often images almost concentrated into idols. The poet feels the mystery of a particular forest, not of the science of afforestation or the department of woods and forests. He worships the peak of a particular mountain, not the abstract idea of altitude. So we find the god is not merely water, but often one special river. He may be the sea because the sea is single, like a stream, the river that runs round the world. Ultimately, doubtless, many deities are enlarged into elements. But they are something more than omnipresent. Apollo does not merely dwell wherever the sun shines. His home is on the rock of Delphi. Diana is great enough to be in three places at once, earth and heaven and hell. But greater is Diana of the Ephesians. The localized feeling has its lowest form in the mere fetish or talisman such as millionaires put on their motor cars, but it can also harden into something like a high and serious religion, where it is connected with high and serious duties, into the gods of the city or even the gods of the hearth. The second consequence is this, that in these pagan cults there is every shade of sincerity and insincerity. In what sense exactly did an Athenian really think he had to sacrifice to Pallas Athene? What scholar is really certain of the answer? In what sense did Dr. Johnson really think that he had to touch all the posts in the street, or that he had to collect orange peel? In what sense does a child really think that he ought to step on every alternate paving stone? Two things are at least fairly clear. First, in simpler and less self-conscious times, these forms could become more solid without really becoming more serious. Daydreams could be acted in broad daylight, with more liberty of artistic expression, but still perhaps with something of the light step of the somnambulist. Wrap Dr. Johnson in an antique mantle, crown him, by his kind permission, with a garland, and he will move in state under those ancient skies of morning, touching a series of sacred posts carved with the heads of the strange terminal gods that stand at the limits of the land and of the life of man. Make the child free of the marbles and mosaics of some classic temple, to play on a whole floor inlaid with squares of black and white, and he will willingly make this fulfillment of his idol in drifting daydream the clear field for a grave and graceful dance. But the posts and the paving stones are little more and little less real than they are under modern limits. They are not really much more serious for being taken seriously. They have the sort of sincerity that they always had, the sincerity of art as a symbol that expresses very real spiritualities under the surface of life. But they are only sincere in the same sense as art, not sincere in the same sense as morality. The eccentric's collection of orange peel may turn to oranges in a Mediterranean festival or to golden apples in a Mediterranean myth but they are never on the same plane with the difference between giving the orange to a blind beggar and carefully placing the orange peel so that the beggar may fall and break his leg. Between these two things there is a difference of kind, and not of degree. 
The child does not think it wrong to step on the paving stone as he thinks it wrong to step on the dog's tail. And it is very certain that whatever jest or sentiment or fancy first set Johnson touching the wooden posts, he never touched wood with any feeling with which he stretched out his hands to the timber of that terrible tree, which was the death of God and the life of man. As already noted, this does not mean that there was no reality or even no religious sentiment in such a mood. As a matter of fact, the Catholic Church has taken over with uproarious success the whole of this popular business of giving people local legends and lighter ceremonial movements. Insofar as all this sort of paganism was innocent and in touch with nature, there is no reason why it should not be patronized by patron saints as much as by pagan gods. And, in any case, there are degrees of seriousness in the most natural make-believe. There is all the difference between fancying there are fairies in the wood, which often only means fancying a certain wood as fit for fairies, and really frightening ourselves until we will walk a mile rather than pass a house we have told ourselves is haunted. Behind all these things is the fact that beauty and terror are very real things and related to a real spiritual world. And to touch them at all, even in doubt or fancy, is to stir the deep things of the soul. We all understand that, and the pagans understood it. The point is that paganism did not really stir the soul except with these doubts and fancies, with the consequence that we today can have little beyond doubts and fancies about paganism. All the best critics agree that all the greatest poets, in pagan Hellas, for example, had an attitude towards their gods which is quite queer and puzzling to men in the Christian era. There seems to be an admitted conflict between the god and the man, but everybody seems to be doubtful about which is the hero and which is the villain. This doubt does not merely apply to a doubter like Euripides in the Bacchae. It applies to a moderate conservative like Sophocles in the Antigone, or even to a regular Tory and reactionary like Aristophanes in the Frogs. Sometimes it would seem that the Greeks believed above all things in reverence, only they had nobody to revere. But the point of the puzzle is this, that all this vagueness and variation arise from the fact that the whole thing began in fancy and in dreaming, and that there are no rules of architecture for a castle in the clouds. This is the mighty and branching tree called mythology, which ramifies round the whole world, whose remote branches under separate skies bear, like colored birds, the costly idols of Asia and the half-baked fetishes of Africa, and the fairy kings and princesses of the folk-tales of the forests, and buried amid vines and olives, the lares of the Latins, and carried on the clouds of Olympus the buoyant supremacy of the gods of Greece. These are the myths, and he who has no sympathy with myths has no sympathy with men. But he who has most sympathy with myths will most fully realize that they are not, and never were, a religion, in the sense that Christianity, or even Islam, is a religion. They satisfy some of the needs satisfied by a religion, and notably the need for doing certain things at certain dates, the need of the twin ideas of festivity and formality. But though they provide a man with a calendar, they do not provide him with a creed. A man did not stand up and say, I believe in Jupiter and Juno and Neptune, etc., as he stands up and says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
and the rest of the Apostles' Creed. Many believed in some and not in others, or more in some and less in others, or only in a very vague poetical sense in any. There was no moment when they were all collected into an orthodox order which men would fight and be tortured to keep intact. Still less did anybody ever say in that fashion, I believe in Odin and Thor and Freya. For outside Olympus, even the Olympian order grows cloudy and chaotic. It seems clear to me that Thor was not a god at all, but a hero. Nothing resembling a religion would picture anybody resembling a god as groping like a pygmy in a great cavern that turned out to be the glove of a giant. That is the glorious ignorance called adventure. Thor may have been a great adventurer, but to call him a god is like trying to compare Jehovah with Jack and the Beanstalk. Odin seems to have been a real barbarian chief, possibly of the Dark Ages after Christianity. Polytheism fades away at its fringes into fairy tales or barbaric memories. It is not a thing like monotheism as held by serious monotheists. Again, it does satisfy the need to cry out on some uplifted name or some noble memory in moments that are themselves noble and uplifted, such as the birth of a child or the saving of a city. But the name was so used by many to whom it was only a name. Finally, it did satisfy, or rather, it partially satisfied, a thing very deep in humanity indeed, the idea of surrendering something as the portion of the unknown powers, of pouring out wine upon the ground, of throwing a ring into the sea, in a word, of sacrifice. It is the wise and worthy idea of not taking our advantage to the full, of putting something in the other balance to ballast our dubious pride of paying tithes to nature for our land. This deep truth of the danger of insolence, of being too big for our boots, runs through all the great Greek tragedies and makes them great. But it runs side by side with an almost cryptic agnosticism about the real nature of the gods to be propitiated. Where that gesture of surrender is most magnificent, as among the great Greeks, there is really much more idea that the man will be the better for losing the ox than that the god will be the better for getting it. It is said that in its grosser forms there are often actions grotesquely suggestive of the god really eating the sacrifice. But this fact is falsified by the error that I put first in this note on mythology. It is misunderstanding the psychology of daydreams. A child pretending there is a goblin in a hollow tree will do a crude and material thing, like leaving a piece of cake for him. A poet might do a more dignified and elegant thing, like bringing to the god fruits as well as flowers. But the degree of seriousness in both acts may be the same, or it may vary in almost any degree. The crude fancy is no more a creed than the ideal fancy is a creed. Certainly the pagan does not disbelieve like an atheist, any more than he believes like a Christian. He feels the presence of powers about which he guesses and invents. St. Paul said that the Greeks had one altar to an unknown god, but in truth, all their gods were unknown gods. And the real break in history did come when St. Paul declared to them whom they had ignorantly worshipped. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. 
And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>